0: I guess the the good news is this morning that if if you missed breakfast, there's apples here for you, right? I trust everybody grabbed an apple on your way in this morning, and if you're on your way out the door and you notice there's still an excessive amount of apples, please grab another one because they're just going to sit around here all week, and uh, that's how that's going to go. So, um, don't be afraid to grab one more, but I was thinking this morning that uh, fruit comes from a uh, strong, healthy, vibrant tree, right? These apples that we're going to enjoy this morning, these sweet, uh, refreshing apples, come from a life-giving, healthy tree. It's a tree that's, that's planted in good soil, has deep roots, and someone did that right someone had to care for that tree plant that tree water that tree probably fertilize that tree trim that tree prune that tree all that right so someone put a lot of work into getting these apples to us right and it wasn't just me going to the store and going to Walmart right you have to think before that and you have to think too that this tree wherever these apples came from um whatever tree they came from you have to think that that tree did not bear fruit necessarily for itself, what benefit does the tree get from producing these apples? Uh, there's probably some sort of scientific benefit, but uh, just don't get too complicated here, right? The tree is not necessarily benefiting from the fruit that it bore, that for us to enjoy, and um, you know that's just a good picture, I think, of a healthy Christian. Life and a snapshot of what we're going to talk about as we revisit our church's vision of having deep roots and bearing fruit. If you didn't know, that's our church's vision, right? We want to have deep roots and we want to bear, bear fruit. And that's, you know, this, this passage that we're in this morning is one of the most practical and helpful passages in the New Testament dealing with the subject of spiritual growth and fruit bearing. So I'm excited to study it. It talks about uh, why we should bear fruit and how we can bear fruit. And really, we're just going to boil it down into two um, steps for being a fruitful Christian. And the first one is just to um, be rooted. Be rooted in God's resources. That's what we find in verses 1 through 4. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 here. Simon Peter And Godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence these are mind-blowing verses here but look at verse 4 for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust So, um, that's a mouthful, right? The realities that have taken place in Christ, you put your faith in Christ, given divine power, the divine nature. But um, let's just dive into some of the the background here, right? The author, obviously, the Apostle Peter, and is not uncommon in the first century, he identifies himself uh, with two names. Um, One of them is Simon, that's his Hebrew name. Peter would be his Greek name. And then uh, Kephas would be you guys remember that, uh, would be his uh, Aramaic name. So he's actually got three names when you think about it, but um, Peter's just a translation of Kephas, the Aramaic name. But um, remember, Jesus changed this man's name. A uh, long time ago, John, chapter one, verse 42. Jesus, he meets Jesus, and Jesus says, "Ah, Simon, you're going to be named Kephas. You're going to be named Peter, Rock." Right? And uh, presumably, I think, based on his testimony and his destiny. And the testimony being that he professed, he's the first disciple to profess Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he's deity, that he's he's the Messiah. And uh, also in destiny in that he would become a rock-like figure in the early church, and God used him to open the door of salvation to the Jews, to the Gentiles, that sort of thing. And he became actually known as the apostle to the Jews, and Paul sort of became, in the second half of the book of Acts, remember, the apostle to the Gentiles. But, um, at times, it's interesting, when Peter, Peter would act like his old self, uh, when he's, when, you know, when all the disciples are following Jesus in the gospel, whenever Peter started to act like his old self, kind of like the knucklehead, right, Peter, uh, Jesus would sometimes call him Simon. And it's kind of like, eh, you're not, I, the way I understand that is Jesus is saying to him, Peter, you're not acting like the rock that I need you to be here. Right? You're acting like Simon. You're kind of acting like the old you. And, and so, basically, I think Peter, right off the bat here, provides us with a great illustration of what it's like to, be, to grow spiritually. This is a man that went from Simon to Cephas. Right? He went from Simon to rock, he became a rock-like figure because he grew spiritually. Uh, he's a man who grew significantly, and we see that throughout uh, the Gospels and Acts and his epistles. I mean, this, this Peter that writes this is just not the same Peter that you find in, in the early days of following Jesus and in, in Jesus' ministry. Uh, And partly do, why? Because he's got the divine nature. He's been born again of the Holy Spirit here. But um, he grew a ton. Peter became a useful and fruitful instrument in the Lord's hands and a wonderful story about God's patient grace uh, over those years. But uh, I think his renaming of Peter shows us that God doesn't look at us so much as what we are, but what he's going to turn us into. The potential that we have in Christ to become, but something to think about this morning. And even though Peter, look at this. Even though Peter's a high-profile figure in the in the church, look at how he aden- identifies himself. First, he identifies himself as a bond servant, as a slave to Jesus Christ. And uh, I don't know about you, but we don't tend to identify ourselves that way. Hey, I'm a slave first and foremost of jesus christ uh but peter does and uh he isn't living for himself he's living for jesus that's why he considers himself a slave of jesus i'm living for christ i'm living for him and that's part of the reason why he's fruitful if we want to be fruitful believers we have to understand we we're called to be slaves of jesus christ that's a good thing and uh he's a also citing citing here his credentials as an apostle Um, reason being is that he's writing to some scattered believers up in uh, northern turkey who are dealing with false teachers and he has to uh, cite his credentials here just to remind them that, hey, I'm an apostle, and this letter comes to you with apostolic authority. And uh, basically, remember that the words from him are greater than the words of those false teachers that are in trying to uh, deceive them but um, he also says that these believers have received a same a faith of the same kind as his own he says of ours right maybe the apostolic faith or wherever peter's at writing from uh, he's saying you guys you guys even though you're up in northern turkey even though you're far away from your home you've been scattered that you have the same faith as ours Right? It's not a different faith. It's the same thing, and you have received the same faith freely through the righteousness of Christ, he says. They're, they're God and Savior. What a great expression of deity of Jesus Christ right there. There it is. Who's Jesus Christ? God and Savior right there. Right? There's a great expression of Christ's deity, uh, plain and simple. But uh, notice how Peter doesn't come at them with any sort of spiritual elitism here he has the same faith he and these believers he write, he writes to are accepted by god uh the same way by uh, they have they have grace from god they have peace with god only through the the basis of of, of righteousness that they've received in christ uh you know, Peter's not writing to the, these believers, it's like, you know, I'm on the A team, and you're on on the B team, you know, and I'm a little higher, and a little more superior than you, he doesn't write like that, in particular, uh, that's, there's a reason for it, and it's, Peter's kind of just leveling the playing field here, saying that we're all accepted by Christ the same way, 100% pure grace, right, our, our only righteousness before God is the righteousness of Christ, our faith in him, and, uh, Uh, Basically, that's a polemic right there in and of itself against the false teachers of the day who were basically, they were spiritual elites, and they were pressing themselves over, you know, putting themselves up and above these believers, you know, looking down their noses at these believers and uh, trying to make them feel like they needed to get where they were, you know what I mean? They were a little more spiritual, and so that's kind of how they get you, right? Uh, But uh, Peter's saying, look, the faith that I have, the relationship I have with God you have it too. It's the same faith. Uh, and, uh, and because of that reality, he's saying, look, you don't need something more. You have everything you need in Christ and, and I expect you to bear fruit for God. You know, because of that. Right? You don't need something more to bear fruit. You already have it. You have Jesus Christ. So get with it, right? But uh, to understand the letter, I think you have to see it as a polemic against these false teachers. And that's, that's a huge element in this book. Um, these false teachers that Peter was dealing with, uh, whom he describes in, in chapters 2 and chapter 3, uh, they probably embraced some form of dualism. Basically, the idea that that which is spiritual is good and that which is physical is evil. You ever hear of that? kind of a Gnostic teaching, right? Everything is spiritual is good, physical is evil. And uh, basically, uh, what they would say is that God doesn't care about the physical. He doesn't really care about what you do in this life, so you can just live it up, right? Sin away, have your fun. And uh, Peter, on the contrary, is saying, no, actually, God really does care about what you do in this life, and he's going to exhort them to live in a manner worthy of the calling that they have in Christ. Basically, Peter's saying he didn't save you so you could live in sin. You know what I mean? He didn't free you from God. sin's penalty. He freed you from sin's power. Right? You have escaped the corruption in the world through lust. And so, uh, that comes through the power and promises of God. But the false teachers would also have professed to have a special knowledge. Uh, so they weren't just enticing these believers to license the idea that you can just live however you want now that you have Christ, uh, they were also teaching a higher form of knowledge that everybody needed, that they had, that, any, that nobody else did, right? So uh, they made people feel like, I need something more than Jesus. Jesus just isn't enough, and so I've got to go somewhere else. I've got to have this experience. I've got to have this blessing. I've got to do this work in order to be more spiritual, and uh, Peter here just says, look, you, in verse 3, he says, you have everything. I mean, you might want to circle that word in your Bible. Everything that you need pertaining to life and godliness. You have everything in Christ that you need to bear fruit. And uh, this, this uh, knowledge that Peter gets into, he brings up knowledge a couple times here. Uh, grace and peace have been multiplied to us in the knowledge of god and of our jesus our lord but uh again that's another polemic against the false teachers knowledge that they held out as bait for people this knowledge that peter's talking about and the way that this word knowledge is used is basically a relational knowledge this isn't just head knowledge it's not just information even though it is but it should lead to a relationship with jesus christ like a knowledge of who you are in christ I've put my faith in Christ. I have been born again. I have the promises of God. He's never going to leave me, never going to forsake me. And, you know, I have this unique knowledge relationship. And if you have that knowledge of who you are in Christ and what he's done for you, then you're a lot less susceptible to the false teachers because you understand in your knowledge of Christ that you have everything in him. Does that make sense? So if I have everything I need in Jesus Christ, I could care less what this guy says I need. You know what I'm saying? So it's a protection. The knowledge, growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, is a protection against the false teachers saying, oh, but you need one more thing. You know, Or you need a couple more things here. So um, if we don't, you think about it. Uh, if we don't understand that Christ relationship that we have with him, the spiritual realities, the divine power, the divine nature, uh, then we are going to look elsewhere. It's so often, isn't it, the, that you know, the, the lack of knowledge that we have of Christ uh, can keep us from growing in Christ and becoming useful and fruitful. I mean, how many, guys, what, who, what does the kingdom of the cults prey on? all these cults out there, they prey on people who are just, they're not mature, they're not steady in their faith, they don't understand who they are in Christ. And so Peter is exhorting this church to grow in their grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as a form of protection against the cults, against the heresies, basically, against the false teachers. And uh, I like what one man said, he said, if we lack anything, It might simply be the understanding that we lack nothing. I thought that was great. But, uh, so first, resource, right? First thing we need to do, first step, be planted in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Be planted in Christ, Paul would say. Um, And that's the theme, really. Grow so that you're protected from false teachers. Uh, D. Edmund Hebert, uh, Hebert, I don't know how to say his last name, but he said, our safety lies... He's a New Testament commentator, by the way, but he said, Our safety lies in our clear apprehension of the nature of the new life in Christ and our spiritual growth and maturity in the faith as the best antidote against error. So this is, this is why Paul or Peter in his letter here, he'll say, look, look at verse 12 here. And this is so comforting to me being a pastor. I don't have to come up here with something new all the time. Look at verse 12. I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present within you, right? So basically, he's just reminding them of this fact, of who they are in Christ so that they're protected from the false teaching. But uh, let's, let's just move on here. Second step, the command to bear fruit now. Uh, The command to bear fruit. Verse 5 through 9. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and your brotherly kindness, love. For if... These qualities are yours, and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So, Peter reminds these believers that because they have the resources that they need to grow and be fruitful, they're now responsible for doing such. He can actually command them to bear fruit because they have everything they need. God has entrusted you with these resources, with these precious resources, with his promises, with his power and, and righteousness. You know, and so basically he can now command us to bear fruit because God, God, God expects us to be faithful stewards of these resources right so um, we're kind of moving here from salvation now to sanctification look at that I hope you notice that saving faith is already assumed in these people and now they are to supply on top of their faith or maybe mix in with their faith all of these different virtuous qualities so it's like you know you've got the dough already you know in the in the bowl and now you're going to add the chocolate chips right you've got the faith now just mix in these virtues with your faith or on top of it you know put the topping on the cherry on top Uh, that's how i kind of look at this passage Uh, supply the word supply is a command it's an imperative and uh we can tell if we're Growing and and bearing fruit. Boy, I have a lot of typos in my notes, don't I? Um, But if we we know we're growing and bearing fruit, if we see these virtues, he says, both present and increasing in our lives. Are these virtues that he just listed, those seven virtues, present in your life and growing in your life? That's how you know if you are growing. So are they increasing in your life? Ah, That's what I want to know. But uh, these virtues, by the way, are a sharp contrast to the shameful characteristics of the false teachers that he's going to list uh, in chapter 2. Uh, many Bible students, too, they question um, you know, whether this list is meant to be chronological or like a staircase or ladder where I have to take one step before the next. Like, do I have to get some knowledge before I have self-control, self-control before you know, godliness, and, you know, is it chronological? And my thought is you can't get too mechanical with this thing, right? It just doesn't work that way in real life. But at the same time, I would say I don't think there's a mistake here that there does seem to be a progression from knowledge to love, right? Because we just talked about knowledge, how you need to have that knowledge of Jesus Christ, right, to grow right. But I don't think it's an accident either that love is the last and basically, the climactic virtue here. Because love is basically the sum of all Christian ethics, right? You want to you fulfill the law? What does Jesus say? Love God, love your neighbor, right? So if I, if I want to love my neighbor, I'm not going gonna, gonna to fulfill the law. I'm not going to steal from him. I'm not going to lie to him. I'm, you know, whatever, whatever. You know what? I, you get the point, right? I'm going to want to serve that neighbor if I love him. And I don't care if he serves me back. So love is the essence of all Christian ethics. And uh, here's what Dr. Thomas Constable had to say about uh, this sort of staircase virtue ladder that we see here. Uh, He said, The literary device that Peter uses simply arranges the virtues in an advancing order, but presents them so that each one receives emphasis. So they're all important, and uh, there is an advancing order. But... Now he says he continues the total effect is to create the impression of a growing of growing a healthy tree in which several branches are vital i'm getting kind of tongue tied there but uh, it's like a growing tree and all the branches are vital to that tree so um, the passage also begins to address uh, what fruit is? Have you ever wondered? Oh, this church talks about bearing fruit all the time. What is fruit? Well, according to this passage in Galatians chapter 5, fruit can be virtuous Christ-like qualities, right? Like the seven listed here, or love, joy, peace, patience. What, what are all those called? The fruit of the Spirit, right? More virtuous qualities. Uh, John fifteen five says, We bear fruit when we obey Christ. When we obey Christ, we abide in Christ, and we bear fruit through our obedience. Titus says we are to engage in good works so that we're not unfruitful. Uh, people who come to Christ through our Christian witness, as we share the gospel, are sometimes called fruit, right? Uh, some people, Paul would call his firstfruits among the people of Asia Minor or whatever. And uh, we also bear fruit with our lips. We just bore fruit this morning when we were singing praises to God, uh, according to Hebrews 13. And then we bear fruit when we give uh, financially to God's causes. We're giving f- money, and uh, that money is going somewhere. It's, it's you know, supporting ministry. And uh, helping others come to know Christ. And so it bears fruit. And so it, it's really neat, right? Uh, all the different ways that we can bear fruit. I mean, I can bear fruit just lying in a hospital bed somewhere. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to do anything. I can just sing praise to God. I can share the gospel. You know, I can bear fruit anywhere. Uh, it's easy. It's doable. But uh, uh, our church board... Is going through a book called So Great a Salvation, So Great Salvation by Charles Ryrie. He has a really helpful chapter in there on bearing fruit. And here's what he said He said, Every Christian will bear fruit somehow, some way, sometime. No believer is fruitless, but not every believer is necessarily fruitful. Right? So I thought that was really helpful, and that's what we see in verses eight through nine, uh, when Peter makes the point that we are responsible to bear fruit. Now uh, we'll get into that, but uh, look at the look at this passage. Um, maybe this way. Imagine that your dream is to be a farmer, and I hope you guys don't ever get tired of my farming analogies. It's just what I really relate to, um, but. Like many young people, right? You need help to start farming these days. Yeah, it's just really hard to get into the farming business without a benefactor of some kind that supports you, lets you borrow their equipment. So let's just let's pretend that you want to be a farmer, and I'm your benefactor. And so I'm going to let you. I'm going to give you all the land you need. I'm going to give you the equipment. I'm going to buy your seed. I'm going to buy your fertilizer. Man, wouldn't this be nice? I'm going to buy, you know, I'm going to pay for the irrigation even. All of that, it's all yours, free. And you want to be a farmer. But even though I give all of these things to you, you still have to do what? Yeah, farm, right? (laughs) You still got to farm. I'm not going to do that for you. And so you do have a part in this. Uh, You have to plant the seed you have to irrigate you have to spray you have to cultivate and that's that's a great picture of what this Passage is teaching us. God has done his part. He has given us his resources You have Christ which means you have the Spirit of God in you you have Gifts of the Holy Spirit you have resources talents, you know And and God expects a return on those investments in you You know and so uh, that's something we have to think doesn't happen automatically. And I, I meant to bring it in, but I got a tree sitting right outside the front church doors here, just a little oak tree. Someone gave me an oak tree this week um, that I want to plant in my yard. Well, it's funny. I wanted an oak tree. And then someone called me up this week. Actually, it was Ed. uh, says, hey, you want an oak tree? And I was like, man, I was just thinking this week I wanted an oak tree because I have a spot where an oak tree didn't make it. But uh, it was before I moved in there. But anyway, I was like, man, I'm so thankful for this little fruit tree. You know, it's just a little eight-inch tall tree. But you have to think, right? If I want that tree to grow and I want it to bear fruit, what do I got to do? I got to plant that thing. And I got to water it and care for it. Probably fertilize it, all of that. It takes some work. It takes some effort. And that's, again, just another picture of what Peter is saying here. And it's important because I think a lot of us think or we have the idea that sanctification, growing in Christ, is just automatic. I really wish it was true. I really do. I wish I could put this thing under my pillow at night and then wake up more spiritual. But it doesn't work that way. i got to open this thing. i got to read it. i got to pray. i got to put myself in a position to grow. I need to go to church on Sunday. I need to pay attention. I need to listen. I need to prayerfully take in. You know, and there's a ton of resources out there for us to grow, right? And and uh, we have to, we're responsible to grow. It's not automatic. And that's why Peter says in verse 8, he says if these qualities are yours increase and increasing. Basically, if are they? Am I growing or am I not? Um And I think the reason why a lot of Christians don't necessarily grow or they get stunted in their growth is because it's just what we talked about. It is hard work, right? It's hard work to grow. You do have to take time to read God's Word. You do have to pray. You do have to witness. You know, you do have to come to church on Sunday and set aside your priorities. You know, and and so you also have to be, think about this, you also have to be vulnerable, to let God change you. And I think that's where a lot of us get hung up. So just make life about us, and we don't want to bear so much fruit because it means that I have to change some things in my life. I've got to reprioritize some things. But uh, growth can be painful. It requires pruning. And uh, here Peter says if we fail to grow in Christ, he says we're going to be useless and unfruitful. How many, how many of us this morning want that to be the description of our lives, at the end of our lives, to be labeled as a useless, unfruitful Christian? Right? Not me. I'll tell you what. I don't want that to be me. But it's so easy to be that guy, isn't it? To just soak in all that grace and then just, you know, enjoy it. Not ever share the gospel. You know, just live for me now that I got my ticket to heaven and wow right that's what we want to do but on the contrary think about this because get a little more positive here peter says if you do grow you're gonna be what useful and fruitful so when you grow you're useful and fruitful you become a useful and fruitful believer and uh that's something again that all of us can do Every single one of us can apply virtues like this that Peter mentions to our lives. We can all grow. There's like, no one can go, no one's gonna, none of us that are Christians here are gonna stand before God someday and say, sorry, I just didn't have what I needed to be a fruitful Christian. I was, I didn't have the gift of speaking, so I couldn't preach, I couldn't, no, you don't have to be a, Preacher, you don't have to be a missionary, you don't have to have some really attractive personality. You don't have to have great talents that everybody oos and ahs over. I mean, you just have to be faithful. Anybody can do that where they are. Again, even on a hospital bed, and you can't go anywhere. I isn't Johnny Erickson Tata a great example of that, right? Just You know, can't go anywhere. She's just stuck in that wheelchair all the time. She can't move, paralyzed. All she can do is talk and share Jesus with people. And she is incredibly fruitful, right? And she paints for the glory of God. Just amazing. Look her up if you don't know who she is. But um, let's look at verse 9. Focus on verse 9. Peter says that Christians who fail to apply these qualities are not only useless to the Lord and unfruitful, but they're also blind and short-sighted. And uh, short-sighted, here's the Greek word. I don't get into the Greek a whole lot, but mupadzo. What does that remind you of? Myopadzo. Myopia, right? Short-sightedness, near-sightedness. So basically, believers who don't grow, they're nearsighted they 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 don't have a spiritual vision uh they're they're blind in that category it's crazy to think of a christian being that way but um they're living essentially for the here and now only and not for what is eternal they have a nearsightedness they're short-sighted and uh, i get nearsighted and farsighted confused so um anyway but basically, they're not living for what's eternal. And Peter says folks like this have forgotten their former purification from their sins. They've forgotten their forgiveness of sin in Christ. And I think, I think we all know people like this. Uh, we know they're Christians, right? We know that they know Jesus. But they've been stunted somewhere in their growth. Uh, they're not growing up like they should. And because of that, it's put them in a position where uh, maybe, maybe they, maybe they've been stunted because they didn't get in the word. They didn't gather on Sundays. They quit gathering on Sundays. They they put themselves, they didn't put themselves in a position to grow. And so they've been stunted in their growth, and now they're they've become prey to false teachers, you know, and, and just legalistic systems. Like the Galatians. The Galatians were Christians, but they forgot the gospel, and now they're trying to earn salvation again. So again, this is why it's so important to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, because you're just a sitting duck out there for all sorts of false junk, right? And and so I think that's what happens here, what Peter's saying here, with real Christians forgetting or not knowing about their Christ knowledge. Right, And so they become susceptible to both legalism and license. And Peter deals with this in chapter 3, but the false teachers mocked the idea of the Lord's return, the second coming. Right, They were mocking it. And uh, Peter says, you know, in, in chapter 3, he talks about this. He says, uh, in the last days, mockers are going to come with their mocking, following their own lust, saying, where's the promise of his coming? Right? They had this uniformitarianism in their minds. They basically, everything's nothing's ever changed. It's all been going on like this since the beginning, and he's never coming back. And Peter says, you better get ready, <laughs> right? Because Jesus is coming, and he can come at any time. And, and it's not going to be just him coming to... I don't know, bless everybody. He's going to come in judgment, right? He's going to come with wrath to be poured out on the ungodly. And so that's what Peter's saying. You need to prepare for that. How can you, this is why they didn't, this is why they weren't living that out, right? Because they understood, if they, if they don't understand that Jesus Christ is coming like that, in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who don't know Christ, If they don't understand that Revelation 19, Revelation 20, right, resurrection and judgment, everything related to that. If you don't have that in mind, are you really going to live that now? Like in light of, you know what it's going to do to your lifestyle? Right. So the eschatology, the idea of future things, future judgment, plays into how we live right now. It has a purifying effect on our lives. And when the false teachers are saying, oh, he's never coming, they're saying, live how you want. It doesn't matter. Right? And that's basically why we get into what we do in verses 10 through 11. He says, therefore, brethren, notice again, these are saved Christians. He says, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So, now we're getting into the doctrine of glorification, aren't we? How, how, uh, how neat is that? He moved from salvation, who you are in Christ, to now here's how you live in Christ, and here's why you want to live this way in Christ, because of what's coming, right? You're going to stand before God someday, and so... Um, What does he mean, though, by this be more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you? What does he mean by that? Uh, We'll get into that. But he says first, well, I'll say first that an Arminian will say that Christians can lose their salvation if they don't bear fruit. I don't usually get into the whole Arminianism, Calvinism debate, but we're going to do that a little bit this morning. An Arminian will say if a Christian doesn't bear fruit, he'll lose his salvation. That's how they interpret that. A Calvinist will say, well, if he doesn't bear fruit or don't see enough of it, whatever, I never really was saved at all. But as a, I don't know, I like to call myself neither one of them two. I just want to be a biblicist, right? Um, even though everybody claims to be a biblicist. But, I mean, if you just you lay aside some of the systematic theology that's out there and you just come and let Peter speak, these are saved people. They're Christians. They have the divine nature they have divine power they are purified they've been forgiven and peter still says make certain about his calling and choosing you right basically i think he expects them it's expected of believers to bear fruit so when they don't you kind of get a question mark in your mind about them right are they really saved or not uh, it all runs through our heads whether we want to admit it or not. I mean, is that person really saved? They don't act like it. That's what Peter's saying here. Make certain about his calling and choosing you, right? Live out your faith. You have faith. Live it out. And uh, so, basically, our point is here that fruit furnishes evidence of faith. Fruit furnishes evidence of faith. Um, Again, the reason he says this is because fruit, though it's not a requirement for salvation, is, or should be, evidence of it. Jesus said, "You'll know people by their fruit." But so when we don't see any fruit, or the fruit in a professing Christian's life is either just private, some people are bearing fruit and you don't even know it. Uh, they're not fruitless, but they're not necessarily fruitful. Sometimes fruit in people's lives, and our lives, is erratic. We all have moments where we don't bear fruit. Sometimes our fruit is minimal at best. But, uh, again, we, we don't always see it. But that, just because we don't see it doesn't mean that it's not there. Think about that. Um, according to Peter, there is such a thing as a useless, unfruitful, blind, and short-sighted believer. And I certainly don't want to be one of them. Uh, there is room in peter and paul's theology for a carnal christian so i would say to just add to this that if we have trusted christ as our savior we have an objective assurance from god that we are saved whether you feel like you're saved or not you are saved because of what god says god says those who have placed their faith in christ have been saved and 1st John 5:11 through 13, right? It says you can know that you have eternal life if you've trusted in Christ. But that's an objective sh- assurance. There doesn't need to be doesn't need to be any doubt. But I would say too that if we fail to live out our salvation, I don't see why there wouldn't be doubt because I'm not acting like I'm saved and I would say this is a kind of a subjective assurance feeling, but I'm not going to feel saved. Right? I sure sure, they certainly don't look like it. So I would say when you live out your faith, that your assurance is gonna start to deepen. And we all know people probably who wrestle with assurance of salvation. I don't feel saved. Well, I would say in response to that, are you living it out? Are you really walking with Jesus? Are you in the word? Are you in prayer? Are you serving him? Are you involved in your local church? Are you seeking to win people for Christ? That is what I would ask. Because when we don't, when our condition, the condition of our lives doesn't match our position in Christ, I think we lose the sense that we're a child of God. I think we lose that sense. But with that being said, too, I would caution us against maybe focusing too much on ourselves and our own performance Because there's a lot of times where we're just not going to measure up, right? We all have moments where we don't bear fruit, and in those moments we need to remember, I'm not saved based on my performance. I'm based on Christ's sacrifice on the cross for me. Amen? That's the objective assurance that we have. We base our primary assurance on him and his sacrifice, on Christ's word, so... But last, our final encouragement for today is found in verse 11, and it's that Jesus rewards her fruit bearers. Verse 11 says that if we supply these virtuous qualities to our lives, He says he's going to supply an abundant entrance into heaven for you. So supply comes up twice. Once we do the supplying, the second time Jesus does the supplying, he supplies you with an abundant entrance. The idea is there's like the Greek games and you're crossing the finish line and there's all the pomp and there's praise and ah, yeah, well done, right? That's what we all want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. And uh, yeah, that's, that's something to live for, isn't it? I think... A lot of times we don't think about uh, different rewards in heaven. Uh, We all think, well, we're all going to heaven. But there are rewards, the Bible says, for those who are faithful fruit bearers. Everybody's going to be rewarded with entrance into heaven. But I would say there's going to be different rewards based on how we live this life. I think there's going to be some disappointment at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, when people look back on their lives and say, man, I wish I would have lived for him. I wish I would have been more faithful. And so don't let that be you, because our works, everything we did in this life, they're gonna pass before his throne like on a conveyor belt, and they're gonna go through fire, you know? And some of that, it's gonna burn up. It's wood, hay, and stubble. It's gonna gonna get scorched by the flames. But then some of it, 1 Corinthians 3 says, Is going to go through there, and it's going to be like precious rubies and jewels that have been purified. And uh, Jesus Christ will reward you for your faithfulness in this life. But at the end of the day, we're all going to get in 100% by pure grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. In summary, I just want to say that I'm excited to study this passage today. Because it's been a good reminder for me that, that our vision as a church to have deep roots and bear fruit is is biblical. It's realistic. It's also doable. This isn't something out of our reach. This is doable. We can, Chadron and Church, bear fruit. We have all we need to bear fruit. In fact, we've been commanded to bear fruit and so the only question left is will we and according to verse 11 eternity will tell let's pray uh, Lord once again we're just uh, humbled at your word we're thankful for it and uh, man, Lord just help us to live out what we've studied here today help us to be people Christians who understand who we are in Christ. The amazing privilege, the the holy calling that we have in him. And uh, may we bear fruit, not just fruit, but much fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold, like you said, like you told in that parable. Lord, help us to do that in in any way that you are leading us to. Uh, make that personal in our lives. Help us to understand the different ways that you're speaking to us and leading to us, different ways to get involved in our church, in our, in our families, and uh, in our community. But uh, Lord, we sure love you. We love your word, and we look forward to um, your return and hearing those words, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. May that be said of all of us at the end of the day. Let us never lose our uh, spiritual eternal vision and to keep living for those things which are eternal. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.